I still believe, and we talked a little bit about gas before, that gas is the one that's going to make the biggest change in the next 10 to 20 years in Brazil. That's Anna Zambelli, my guest today on the Brazil series of the Emerging Markets podcast. Anna is a career oil and gas executive who has held top-level positions, including president for Schlumberger in Brazil, managing director positions for Transocean, both for South American operations and for worldwide subsidy operations, and she has served as the chief commercial officer for Maersk Drilling. Today, she divides her time between several board positions, primarily on the board for Petrobras, the Brazilian national oil company, and Brascom, one of its subsidiaries. There are probably few people as qualified to speak on the industry in Brazil. We of course cover the Brazilian oil and gas industry, but I ask Anna for her views on Brazilian economic growth. So I think right now, despite of what is your philosophy or your own point of view in terms of politics, one thing I think nobody can deny in Brazil is that if Brazil wants to grow and to expand, cannot depend on the investment of the government because the government just do not have the condition to invest on it. And her thoughts on the future energy mix. You know, biofuels in Brazil also has potential to continue growing. And I think we're going to use that as a, as a better source for cars and for transportation generally in Brazil. So I think electrical vehicles is probably something that I don't see as one of the solutions for Brazil in the next few years. So, good afternoon, Anna. Good afternoon, Ben. Thanks for having me. So let's let's start with the Brazil oil and gas industry. So, of course, Brazil saw one of the world's great hydrocarbon discoveries in the pre-salt formations uh, around 2006. This has seen production accelerate with Brazil, one of the top 10 producers globally, with the second largest reserves in South America. So, firstly, can you speak a bit about the development of the Brazilian oil and gas industry with particular reference to the last decade and the discoveries of pre-salt formations? Yeah, so Brazil has been on the oil and gas business for quite a long time, but actually it was in 1997 when the market opened for you know other companies besides Petrobras to be able to explore oil and gas in Brazil. And actually, you know, the Brazilian market started having um, quite a few of uh, companies interested in Brazil after 2000. And then in 2007, you know, where several companies were already, you know, starting exploration in Brazil and mainly in deep water, and that's where Petrobras also expertise was. In 2007, Petrobras discovered this area that calls the pre-salt. It actually calls the pre-salt because it's related to when uh, the salt was deposited um, into the formation um, and where the formation of oil was deposited in terms of uh, geological time. So actually the oil is below the salt formation. Uh, so it was deposited prior to the salt, that's what they call the pre-salt. Um, and since then, Brazil has had several um, interests from all over the world because the volumes in the pre-salt area are substantial. We talk about uh, 15 billion barrels of, of oil in place or, or, or more of discovery. And uh, so in 2008, Brazil suspended the bidding, the conventional bidding rounds um, that allows the participation from operators from all over the world. And during four or five years, um, there was a lot of debates um, in Brazil regards to how they should um, actually allow companies to explore Brazil oil and gas. 
So with that, in 2013, the bid rounds resume, and that's when they had the first, what they call the first pre-sale bidding round. At that time, they decided to change the regime that used to be a concession regime. A concession regime, many countries have that, and it's basically the risk is on the operator side, on the one that's going to explore the oil and gas. Um, they normally pay a signing bonus and then what they call kind of a retention for the area, and that allows them to explore on the area for X many years. In Brazil, it was about 27 years. And then, of course, they will pay royalties, you know, during the period that they are exploring that area. Uh, with the pre-sale discovery in 2013, when the bidding round resumed, they decided to go for different types of contract. It's called a production sharing contract. And mainly on that, what happened is that the operator now has the right to explore, takes the cost of the oil out, including royalties, so all the expense out to, you know, to a certain cap level. And then the amount that is left, all the profitability that is left, there is share between the company that is exploring and the government. Right. Uh, what the government has done in this first, second and third bidding round is that they actually only were allowing Petrobras to be the operator. So you could have um, some other major companies or even independent companies um, from oil and gas side, from exploration and production side. However, Petrobras has to be the sole uh, operator. And Petrobras would, would have a minimum amount of 30% in all those fields. And then it was about 2000, end of 2016, beginning of 2017, where the government moved one step further in terms of how they will open up the, the market and say, from now on, Petrobras no longer needs to be the sole operator of the pre-sale. Any company that bids has the right to uh, operate. What they allow Petrobras to have was uh, what they call the preference right. So that means that if Petrobras want to be part of that consortium with the other operators, they would have to include Petrobras on it. So if Petrobras has interest on that specific area, Petrobras could have a share of the area, but no longer need to be the, the operator. And that's the type of concessions that we have today. We have had, I think, two, is a bidding round four and five, has been under this production sharing, with Petrobras no longer having the uh, being the sole operator. And we're going to have the next uh, bidding round on, on production sharing and pre-sale, in the next month, so it's going to be the sixth one. Right, because this is happening in November and there are 13 qualified operators, uh, pre-qualified operators, which are listed. So how has this new type of uh, arrangements changed the industry? I think it has changed quite dramatically because what you see now in Brazil is a cluster, of, I would say, of operators. So you continue having the regular bidding, what we call the regular bidding rounds or the bidding rounds that are concession based. Uh, we just had a few days ago the 16 bidding round on concession. And on those uh, concessions, you see a bit more interest of mid-sized type of operators, mm -hmm. uh, some independents, uh, worldwide independents, some Brazilian operators. Um, and some of the major operators, especially if you go to more uh, deep and ultra deep water, uh, or some of the new frontiers, such like the equatorial margin in, in, in the north of Brazil, 
so that's when you see the, the big operators playing a role. But in the in the regular concession bidding rounds, you see a major participation of medium size uh, operators. So, then has that been part of the uh, objective of, of this new type of arrangement is to encourage smaller operators to get involved in the industry as well and diversify it? Yeah, so ANP has a very clear view on how they would like to see the market in Brazil. So they say that there is three different uh, markets. So they have the, the land market that is really focused on small operators and some local operators uh, that don't have, you know, a big heavy cost from you know some of those heavy organizations. They don't need to have a lot of investments on on high technology or technology development. Um, so therefore, they have lower costs, and with a smaller production, they can still be very profitable and bring profitability and jobs to the country. Then you have this middle block of these medium-sized operators that you're talking about, maybe shallow water, some of the deep water, but not as complex, more known fields or mature fields. And then you have some of the very, you know, uh, extreme water deep water, green fields and pre-salt and focus that on the major operators. So that's the view of ANP that, you know, you would have um, a little bit of an option from all the different types of, uh, of operators. Right. Because the development of pre-salt fields in, in the deep and ultra deep waters are notoriously expensive. So can you speak a bit about the financial and technical obstacles which are unique to this particular part of the oil and gas industry in Brazil? And how does this shape operators' strategy? Yeah, so when you talk about pre-salt, you're talking about somewhere between 1,500 to 3,000 meters of water depth in general. And then in addition to that, you're talking about another from 2,000 to 4,000 meters of a depth on land. So even though the cost of drilling such a well, you know, in passing through these major uh, south zones that can have, you know, from 100 meters to almost 1,000 meters of south, you can clearly see that, you know, the investment in terms of technology and the cost of those wells are extremely high. So the very first well that was drilled in the pre-south, um, it cost close to $200 million. Of course, those are not the actual costs today, but even though that number has been reduced tremendously, it is still a very, very high investment. Some of those wells, you know, when, when we started drilling the pre-south, you know, they're producing 20,000, 25,000 barrels a day, but now you can have wells that are producing 50,000 barrels a day. So... The investment not only to drill the wells, but also to have, you know, FPSOs or any type of uh, production uh, structure for producing those wells, you're talking about several millions, several billion dollars of investments, you know, in many years. So, of course, it's only a field that the major oil companies um, can play. That's why when you look at it, the ones that qualify for the next bidding round, uh, the sixth bidding round of the pre-south, and also... Uh, what they call the mega bidding round that we're going to have, that is the the oil access uh, around the Buzus uh, area, mm-hmm. that also only have the interest of some some very heavy players that can actually afford those type of investments. So who are some of the new newer key players in the industry there that you've seen arise? I, I mean, we, can, we have seen some... Uh, 
coming back players, I would say, um, in different areas. So, for example, Winter Shaw has been participating very actively mm-hmm. um, in the last two bidding rounds. They're a medium-sized company, but they actually have been quite interested in Brazil. Uh, are they totally new to Brazil? No, they have been here before, in around 2007, 2008. They were, you know, exploring in Brazil, and now they are back. We also have seen, you know, from companies like, uh, smaller companies like Perenco, for example, as one of the companies that has shows, has demonstrated interest in Brazil, not only in participating in, uh, uh, I think, bidding rounds, but also we look into fields that Petrobras has put on their divestment plans. Also, some of the Brazilian companies like Oro Preto has uh, shown some uh, interest on some of the divestments that are coming from Petrobras. So, smaller companies like that. And then you see the big players, of course, you know, Shell has been in Brazil for many years mm-hmm. and continues to demonstrate a lot of interest in, on, on the fields in Brazil. Exxon has also been in Brazil, you know, for many years, has Maybe on the beginning of the of the pre-salt um, discovery, you know, Exxon has drilled some wells in Brazil, um, have not been very successful at the time in terms of commercialization, and now investing heavily on the on the last two or three bidding rounds. You see a very active participation from from Exxon. Um, Chevron also has you know been in Brazil for many years. They had the a few fields, one of them being Fragli is, is one of the fields that they have sold because it's quite a mature field and uh, investing quite heavily uh, in some of the new areas. So you, you see also companies like Total that has been in Brazil many years, but you see them quite active uh, now in terms of investment. BP is another one. So I don't, I don't know if we can say new players, but you know players that have been in Brazil before and, and now are investing heavily again in Brazil. Right. So I want to talk about Brazil as an energy player on the global stage. It's one of the largest non-OPEC producers, around 2.5 million barrels a day currently. So it's an increasingly significant player on the global market. Brazil is now Latin America's biggest producer and exporter. How does this shifting stage of energy politics play out for Brazil's leadership? So uh, 20, about 20 years ago, uh, Venezuela used to be a big player in, in Latin America in terms of uh, oil production. And of course, with all the issues that Venezuela has faced uh, on the political side, it has really affected its its production. Um, And Brazil has been slowly taking over uh, this space left by Venezuela. And since 2007, with the discovery of the Brazil, then that has become, you know, an important thing for Brazil to continue developing and to fast track the development of, uh, of oil in Brazil. Brazil today is the biggest producer in Latin America and is the 10th oil producer in the world. So it has quite an important play in, in Latin America, but also in, uh, in the whole world, it starts becoming extremely relevant. The other thing is that uh, Brazil also consumes, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of its own production. Today is the seventh uh, largest consumer in oil. And that's mainly because Brazil is heavy on trucks, you know, right. for movements of goods. So Brazil does not use alternative transportation for moving goods around such a large country, such as train or shipments, you mm-hmm. know, uh, it really use, or ships, it really use, you know, a lot of uh, truck transportation. So I think for, for Brazil in the future, 
also we expect to have a lot of gas production coming from the pre-stop. There is a lot of associated gas. So the only way to produce that huge amount of oil that we have down there is also producing gas. So I think there is tremendous opportunity for Brazil to become an important gas player. So Brazil has mainly two alternatives. It can try to internalize a lot of its gas and use for transportation. It can also use for house consumption. We still have a limited amount of gas being used in Brazil for house consumption, especially in pipelines. It's mainly focused on, on, on the south of the country, southeast of the country. Uh, so we have some potential in there. Of course, industrial potential. And another major potential, in my view, is thermoelectric. Uh, we have a lot of thermoelectric in Brazil that is still used regular fuel today to run. And gas um, can be a great replacement in terms of efficiency, in terms of reducing CO2 emissions. Uh, so that's internalizing. The alternative also for, for Brazil is to also invest in LNG plants and becoming an exporter of gas. Right. So on that uh, topic of, of exports of oil, over the past, or certainly over the past two to three years, uh, exports of crude to China have accelerated something like 43, 45% of total crude exports now make their way to China. There's also the two major Chinese operators involved in ENP activity in Brazil, that's CNPC and CNUC. How critical is, is the Chinese market overall for Brazil's economic recovery and how closely tied are the two economies moving forward? So the development of China is extremely important to Brazil. As you mentioned, Brazil has been a major exporter for, for crude oil to China. China is making some very heavy investments in, in petrochemical some of the largest uh, operators in the world, such as ExxonMobil, uh, is doing major investments on petrochemical plants in China. So China, even though it's already is <laughs> a major importer of, uh, of crude oil today, uh, it is expected to become even a better uh, country to, to export. And with that in mind, and understanding that the Oil that we produce in Brazil um, has a good fit to the refineries and to the petrochemical business in China. That is definitely um, an area for focus. And as you mentioned, uh, when we talk about some of the companies interested in exploring Brazil, I didn't mention because I knew we were going to talk specifically about China, but you mentioned the two Chinese companies. Uh, they're already participating on the bidding rounds. Um, all of them, um, they have been participating heavily, 30%, 40%, even though they have not demonstrated interest yet in being the operator. So I think they re they're relying on the expertise of some of these uh, major oil companies that has a lot of expertise um, drilling and producing uh, in deep water, and especially with the complexity of the pre-south, but with extremely heavy participation on getting some of this crude back to China but also to get the expertise on how to explore oil and gas in such a depth and such a complexity too. Mm, right. I'd like to shift our conversation now to the Brazilian economy briefly. Brazil is obviously coming out of a recession from 2015-16 uh, on the back of an wave of anti-corruption anger. Uh, Mr. Bolsonaro accedes to the presidency in uh, 2018. 
And part of his campaign promise hinged on opening Brazil's notably protectionist economy to global trade, easing business regulations to invite foreign investment. So in your estimation, is the current administration making the correct policy moves to deliver on this promise? I think that's the million dollar questions. And I think everybody would say, you know, what they think is the right policies or not. So I don't know if I can say if all the policies that they're making uh, are the right ones. I think the future will be will be there to say. But what I can say specifically on the oil and gas business is being a progression, you know, much before Bolsonaro uh, became as a president. If you look at that, what we discussed in, in the very beginning of our conversation, how Brazil has been opening up in terms of its oil and gas market, you see a tremendous improvement. Of course, as a Brazilian, sometimes it feels a bit frustrating that we could have gone a bit faster, in my view, uh, from the opening since 1997 uh, until now. But if you have seen, has been a lot of progress, um, you know, in opening up, and then allowing um, companies to participate and have one type of uh, regime and then having a second type of regime that actually uh, fits in the government view better with the result production, but forcing you know Petrobras to be the solo player in the pre-sale and then moving on from that and now having Petrobras with the right to participate but not mandatorily to participate. So when you, when you look at all this progression, you can clearly see uh, that's being an opening and a more liberal approach to how the oil and gas will be playing in the Brazilian economy. Mm. In some other areas now, of course, with uh, Bolsonaro government, you see more openings than what you saw in the past. Um, this government has the view of the government as being less of, a, of an intervention and less of an investor, but more as a guiding and uh, a motivator to companies and to investments to come to the country and from the local players also to be able to invest more then really see the government as a major source of investment. I think the conditions of, of the Brazilian government finance um, does not allow Brazil to do any other way. So I think right now, despite of what is your philosophy or your own point of view, in terms of uh, politics, one thing I think nobody can deny in Brazil is that if Brazil wants to grow and to expand, it cannot depend on the investment of the government because the government just mm-hmm. do not have the condition to invest on it. Right. So opening up in all different fronts, not only on oil and gas, um, is the only way that Brazil can grow right now. Now, would I like to see things moving um, faster? Absolutely. I think Brazil... This is still a very bureaucratic country. It came, you know, from many years um, like this, and of course, it's been trying to become less and less bureaucratic, trying to simplify a lot how to do business in Brazil. But I think we can still improve a lot on this front. I think we can still make things easier. I think we we still need uh, some reforms in the taxation systems in Brazil because it's still very complex and very difficult for internal players and for external players to understand all the rules and and how to play, you know, weaving the rules properly. So I can clearly see, you know, some areas that Brazil can become much more efficient and effective uh, to facilitate investments. You've risen through one of the arguably most male-dominated industries 
and you've held several key executive positions in some of the largest global firms, Michelin Berger, Transocean, Maersk, and of course now Petrobras. So what I'd like to ask you personally is, how have your previous international executive engagements prepared you to take on your current roles? I think it has been extremely important to have uh, international experience um, and to also have um, a good and solid background, you know, from a good and solid background in, in mechanical engineer with a master in petroleum engineer and some post-graduation in MIT in strategy and innovation, most recently doing a, a post-grad in um, in Columbia University in digital transformation, I think it's extremely relevant to have a strong technical background. And in addition to that, the international experience, you know, has been living in different countries, has been working in different companies, uh, all of them international companies uh, with extremely strong behaviors in terms of ethical compliance, HSC, focus on quality and efficiency, um, focus on finance, you know, really understand the finance of your business. And of course, the most important and relevant one is the true operational hands-on experience. I think all that has been uh, extremely important. What I'd like to ask you then is, do you believe there has been, or do you believe that women particularly have any unique obstacles because what you talk about there is is about a technical background and a lot of academic background and hands-on work which would appear to me that most anyone could do in that industry but do you think that women in particular have some unique obstacles in oil and gas yeah i think the there is a, a difficulty um, especially for for the younger females when they start in in business such as oil and gas uh, there is a bit of a pushback from day one, because, you know, we still don't look at uh, our females as natural for for becoming engineers or geologists. So I think on the core business of our business in the oil and gas, uh, we still have a lot of uh, pushback from having a 50-50 hiring. You know, we keep saying that, oh, but there's not 50-50% of uh, males and females in the engineering schools, in the geology schools. Having said that, I think this is a bit of a, a, an excuse because the countries that has the highest amount of uh, women graduating in those technical areas that's in the U.S., they refer to them as STEAM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, such as uh, the Middle East, are the ones that have the last amount of uh, females in those roles. So the Middle East holds about 39% of the graduates in STEAM are females, but they don't have anything close to 39% of females in any of their companies, uh, on technical companies, and very specially on the higher level of management. And even countries like the US that has about 30% of females coming from STEAM, even when they hire 30% of females on the bottom of the organization, on the very start of the organization, when you look at up in the very higher level, you don't have the 30%. So for me, that's a clear statement that it proves that has nothing to do with having, you know, females on STEAM uh, careers or not. It has a lot of, uh, of uh, just a pushback that, with many years being embedded on our society that females are just 
uh, not as seen as capable as men for certain types of jobs. So I think the biggest difficulty that we that I had as a female is that you always have to be, you know, twice as better than your peers to actually be given an opportunity. I was quite lucky that the first company I started working for, which Lumber's here, that I worked for 16 years, is a company that very early saw the importance of having a diverse population, not just gender diverse, but a diverse population, including different nationalities, gender, different age brackets in the different levels of the organization. And that was a company that has always pushed for that. So it was not uh, by coincidence or not just few cases, but several cases you would see uh, people very in their very early years of their career with you know limited interior experience, but they have shown fantastic potential to take you know roles that were extremely important for the company. You would have a mix of nationalities. So Brazilians will be working in China. Chinese will be working in Saudi. Saudis will be working in the U.S. Americans will be working in France. France will be working in Nigeria and so on and so forth. And I think that really helped me to have a very diverse mindset. So as I was moving forward in my career, and then I moved to Transocean, to Maersk, and now in Petrobras, um, and some other boards such as Braskem, I see the value of that and I really make an effort to convey the value to all the organizations that I work for uh, because a diverse group produces such a better result uh, in terms of uh, strategic thinking, in terms of viewing from all different points of view and, and be able to see much more than just a group of people that all think alike, look alike, behave alike. Um, so I'm a big advocate of diversity. So Anna, what I'd like to move toward now is Brazilian workplace and business culture. So your professional career has taken you around the world and you've engaged in both multinational and multicultural corporations. What are some of the more distinctive Brazilian cultural and business norms that foreign business people should familiarize themselves with? So Brazil is still a very complex, um, I think, work environment, business environment. And I think part of it we touched a little bit before um, is that Brazil is still a very bureaucratic country in terms of how to do business. And even though there is a big push from the government to try to simplify and uh, make things easier, I think we still have a long way. And I mentioned before, you know, the tax regimes, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. is quite complex. So I think one of the important things for companies when they come to work in Brazil is to have a local understanding on how things work so they can actually really get a good grasp on all these different, uh, you know, venues that you have to pursue so you avoid frustrations of of not being able, you know, uh, to get your business on track and, and move fast. Right. I think the, the important thing to realize is that even though there is this, this bureaucratic process, you know, there is a major uh, push, you know, for companies to become more efficient, especially smaller companies, um, and for the systems to become um, simpler. I think we have seen quite a few progress in Brazil in terms of the systems that we use. You know, in some areas, Brazil is quite well developed. When you look at elections in in places like the U.S., they used to, you know, counting votes, and in Brazil it's all electronic, so mm-hmm. in a couple of hours you know the results in a country that is, is extremely large and extremely, you know, uh, complex uh, in terms of uh, 
of connection and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think we have quite a few areas that we really are looking towards developing. And one of them, I think, is trying to make everything on, on an electronic format and an electronic mode in order to facilitate business in general. In terms of culture, I think there's been a big push after, you know, the big corruption scandals that happens in Brazil mm-hmm. over the last few years in terms of the company being extremely focused on ethical compliance and governance. So this is something that you see uh, a tremendous shift in Brazil. Ten years ago, you would not hear, even though a lot of companies still have governance and they still have a mandate for compliance, you would not hear that as much. Today, it's very subtle that you get into a company that does not matter which size it is, that people does not talk about ethical compliance and governance. So I right. think that has been a big shift on, on, on the culture of doing business in Brazil. And I think the companies had advanced a lot on, on, on those fronts. Uh, having said that, I think uh, compliance is something that you have to continue working on. Uh, it's the same way as, as we talk about safety, you know, in, in operations. You can never think that you have done enough or it's good enough because that's when things fail that's when you have issues so it's something that you have to continue working but you have i have seen a tremendous improvement on that then the other aspects of of the business in brazil i think it's it's really about um, looking for qualified people right i think most companies when they come to work in brazil they become quite surprised how brazilians in general are very qualified you know very well formed you have I think it's the, it's the good side of, of not having employment for everybody. Um, you find quite easy, you know, uh, quality workers in Brazil in all different uh, business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for foreign companies, you know, of course, the tendency is to bring uh, some of your talents from overseas. But I think what they might fail is to bring too much talent from overseas and not searching for Brazilian talents. Because, of course, you know, having local workers is always cheaper than, than bringing uh, workers from overseas. But I think the mix, uh, especially for international company, is quite healthy. I think it's, like I said before, I think diverse in all different types of aspects is always something that um, I have seen as with tremendous values for business. So I'd like to wind out our conversation here by bringing it back to the discussion about the energy industry. And so any discussion on the energy industry naturally must include some, the climate change and energy transition topic. So Brazil, as you know, boasts an energy mix, which is powered roughly half by renewable energy, uh, largely hydropower, uh, accounts for some 80% of domestic electricity generation. But what I'd like to get are your views on the global concerns of carbon intensive energy generation and the need to transition away from fossil fuels. So I think Brazil, it's it's quite a lucky country. In Brazil, we say that God is Brazilian, you know, and uh, Brazil is already one of the cleanest country in the world in terms of energy source, as you mentioned. Renewables has been part of our way to have energy. Uh, I would say it was not exactly by design, but, you know, we're quite blessed with the amount of water we have, and we did a fantastic job with the, using hydroelectric power. Uh, with the changes in climate, and we can debate it a lot, you know, some people believe, some people do not believe, and they say it doesn't matter if you believe or you don't. The reality is that what you see today in terms of results is different. 
so we don't have the same amount of rain that we had in the past. We don't have the rain in the same seasons as we usually have in the past and control as the way we knew uh, in the past. So definitely we have seen, we have to reduce our dependency on the hydroelectrical power because it's no longer available in the same amount that was there in the past. That's why I said Brazilian, it's, it, uh, God is Brazilian. And we got lucky enough that we had a lot of uh, discoveries on oil and gas. Uh, however, everybody knows that oil and, oil and gas also are a resource that has you know, a finite amount, even though we have discovered a huge amount, uh, we have a finite amount of it. So I think the focus now for Brazil is really to try to get uh, all this oil and gas out of the ground, to use, to develop further the country, but also to use the money from those sources to develop and to have other sources of energy that can be continued to be used in the future. Brazil has a tremendous potential in solar energy. We have you know, sun uh, for the entire country, especially in the north and northeast of Brazil mm-hmm. uh, for the entire year. Uh, we have a lot of potential for wind energy, and we already have some uh, big projects coming up in terms of uh, wind also in the central part of Brazil and also north and northeast of Brazil. So those are two renewables that you see are very intense, you know, uh, becoming relevant in the next few years in Brazil. Having said that, I still believe, and we talked a little bit about gas before, that gas is the one that's going to make the biggest change in the next 10 to 20 years in Brazil. The amount that's going to be produced of gas from the pre-salt, because associated gas, mm-hmm. can have a tremendous impact in the country growth and country development, especially on the industrial side, and also in the use for houses with thermoelectrical energy. Guys who are projects in Brazil, I think it's going to be going to be growing a lot in the next uh, ten years. Um, so I think those are the areas that I see the most. The other discussion that we always have, and I think, again, this is something that people have a different view, is about electrical vehicles. Mm -hmm. And I think Brazil has developed a different solution before, I think, electrical vehicles take off in Brazil. And that's the mix already between uh, gasoline and ethanol. Today, the gasoline that we use in cars in Brazil already has, by law, 20% of ethanol. So it's already a much cleaner, you know, energy or gasoline than in most countries. 98% of the cars uh, that are produced today in Brazil, they are called flex cars. So you can use them with gasoline, 100% gasoline, that in fact Mm -hmm. is already 80-20, or you could use them with 100% ethanol that's mainly coming from from sugar cane production. So biofuels in Brazil also have become a reality. When the first cars of running on ethanol start in the 80s, you know, I remember it used to be a big deal, you know, nobody won on ethanol in the 80s because the engines uh, would take very long to turn it on, especially if it was cold and the efficiency of the cars were not that great. Today, you know, my car is flex, I could use gasoline or ethanol and you barely see the difference. You know, the gasoline is a little bit more efficient, but it's a bit more expensive and ethanol is a bit cheaper and a little bit less efficient in terms of uh, kilometers that you can run. So I think on that front, bio, you know, biofuels in Brazil also has uh, potential to continue growing. Um, and I think we're going to use that as a, 
as a better source uh, for for cars and for transportation generally in Brazil, complementing also gas that's already used in vehicles in Brazil, especially on uh, public transportation. So I think electrical vehicles is probably something that I don't see as one of the solutions for Brazil in the next few years. Right. And that's, that's uh, an important point because, as you mentioned earlier, a large, well, the, the bulk of Brazil's uh, transportation network is automotive driven, that, that we really don't have shipping internally in Brazil and you don't have a rail network. So I guess that's, that's quite critical. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think biodiesels, you know, could be an interesting solution because the consumption of diesel in Brazil is extremely high and different than, than the mix for, you know, for the regular cars that we can have the mix between ethanol and gasoline. Diesel, we still don't have the same mix at this level. We already have biodiesel being mixed with diesel, but not to the same extreme as we have today, gasoline and ethanol. So that's definitely an area for improvement. And of course, I think in the, in the long run, if gas become a solution uh, for heavy transportation such as truck, that could be extremely interesting too for Brazil. So once again, that was my guest today, Anna Zambelli. And I'll take this opportunity to thank Anna for her time and providing us her thoughts on a wide range of topics. And as always, thank you for listening. The Emerging Markets Podcast is produced by Peacod Advisory Group.